Start. I want to start off with a story of something that happened uh, about a few months ago, uh, and it was something that really kind of just shook me a little bit. Uh, my wife was washing some dishes late at night, and when I say late at night, it was probably more early in the morning, like midnight, 12.30 in the morning. I was in the living room doing some work, whatever, and um, all of a sudden, I hear my wife scream. Now, you should know, in my house, um, it is not unusual for my wife to scream. She is uh, scared rather easily at times and just a little bit jumpy sometimes. And my kids, sometimes they take advantage of that. <laughs> and they try to scare mom and try to make her do that. Sometimes I scare her and I'm not even trying to. Like, I'm really trying to avoid scaring her, but apparently I walk too quietly or whatever. Anyhow, jump up behind her and scare her sometimes. Uh, so it wasn't unusual to hear my wife scream, but the, the type of scream that she screamed, it just had that, uh, that, that sense of fear in it that just is impressed in my mind that it'll probably never go away. And she had this scream of fear, and so I quickly uh, run over to go see what's going on, and as I'm running over there, she tells me there's a man knocking on our window. And our window is actually kind of in the corner of our house, right by the kitchen sink. And so like, this man is like right like two feet from my wife at this moment. And so she's just, you know, what's going on at 1230 at night in the morning? Why is this man doing this? And so we quickly get her. I get her out of the way because I don't know what, you know, what, what he's trying to do, break in or what he's trying to do. Uh, get her away, go check on the kids, all that stuff. And um, eventually my wife calls 911 and, and the police officers show up. And the first question that I asked them was who they voted for in 2020. <laughs> was not, right? It was not what I asked, the first question I asked them. Uh, it, it, was, it was not even close to that. I didn't ask them, like, what are their religious views? Like, what are their views on this thing, that thing? That was not what was important in that moment, right? In the uncertainty of the moment, I, the most important thing was the safety, the life of the people that I care about. And I wanted to make sure that they were protected and safe. And sometimes we sort of think that uncertainty sort of um, changes or alters our views, but the reality is that uncertainty or crisis, it actually sort of exposes what we actually view and what we actually value in our lives. It sort of exposes that on a really heightened sense in a lot of ways, right? Um, we, we might think that uncertainty, again, it alters our views or our values, but it doesn't. It actually just exposes what we value. And in times of uncertainty and crisis, you discover and we discover as a nation, as a group of people, community, we discover what we really value. You know, when times are going good, it's easy to sort of pretend that we value certain things. But when crisis, we actually realize and we see what we actually value. Um, Unfortunately, this pandemic and this last few season, the season of life that we've been in, we're sort of coming out of a season where it really exposed a lot of things in our world, exposed a lot of the things that we value. But unfortunately for Christians and for those who call themselves Jesus followers, it especially exposed some things that we say we value, but maybe we don't really value at all. And it exposed some other things that we, we value that we didn't even think we valued before. And this uncertainty sort of brought that to the surface. And unfortunately, as Christians, in some ways, we discovered that what we value most is not that much different from what everyone else values. And maybe some good ways, but also in some bad ways, that we are not much different from other people that don't follow Jesus. In fact, many of us maybe heard some of these outside of these people that are outside the faith or outside of following Jesus or have walked away from following Jesus. They asked some questions, and, and you would hear it in some different ways. They might not say it exactly like this, but they would ask questions like, why are you reacting that way? <laughs> Why are you reacting that way? Why are you responding to that person in that way? Why are you sacrificing your integrity for that? For that thing, of all the things that you're going to sacrifice your integrity for, why are you sacrificing your integrity for that? And unfortunately, those who are outsiders saw that Christians value things that weren't so different from what they value. 
And we sort of elevated some things that, again, weren't that important before, but they became important. Um, Tim Keller says this. This is a kind of a long quote, but the last phrase of it is, is really the key part. Um, when the church as a whole is no longer seen as speaking to the questions that transcend politics. Basically, nothing that's, we don't speak to anything that's relevant outside of politics. We just speak to politics. Um, uh, and when it is no longer united by a common faith that transcends politics, then the world sees strong evidence, and here's the key part, that Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx were right that religion is really just a cover for people wanting to get their way in the world. And unfortunately, that last line could summarize a lot of people's views of Christianity, and specifically a lot of people's views of Christianity after sort of coming out of seeing how we responded in the pandemic. How Christians handled the pandemic, and, and it sort of confirmed what many younger generations, mine included, but also those younger than mine as well, sort of confirmed what those people believe about Christians, and also what people outside of the faith view about Christians, that we don't actually believe what we claim to believe. Because if we actually believed that God was a sovereign God and was in control of all the outcomes in the world, if we actually believed that God was in control of outcomes, then we probably wouldn't have overreacted and gotten so afraid that the church would be irreparably harmed by not being able to meet shoulder to shoulder in a building, right? We would have seen that God is bigger than just meeting together in a building on a Sunday morning. If we really did believe that God wanted us to love our enemies, then we wouldn't talk bad about our enemies and put them down and hate them in such demonizing ways. If we really believe that God, or really believe what we claim we believe uh, about unity and what God told us to be as far as a united church, then we wouldn't let politicians or other pundits divide us, would we? If we really believe what we say we believe, we would have acted and reacted a little bit differently. And unfortunately, I think COVID handed, in some ways it handed us an amazing opportunity. Obviously there's a ton of loss that comes with COVID. I don't wanna minimize that. But in some ways COVID was an opportunity for the church to actually show that we believe what we actually say we believed. But it revealed what's actually most important to many Jesus followers, many Christians. And for, for too many Jesus followers, it was winning, defending our rights, and having our way. That was sort of the goal. That was sort of the thing that we value most. And we should know that seeing that list on the screen looks nothing like Jesus, right? It doesn't look anything at all like what Jesus came to do. None of that really was something Jesus came to do. And I think one of the big reasons that this happened and one of the big reasons that we don't necessarily value or our values didn't show to be the same as what Jesus values is because there's an aspect of Jesus that I think a lot of times we miss in our culture. And there's even good reason that we miss this aspect of who Jesus is. And this aspect of who Jesus is, if we actually sort of live into it and, and acknowledge it and, and remember who Jesus is in this way, it will impact us and it will impact those around us. But when we forget, the opposite is also true. It will impact us negatively and it will also impact those around us negatively. More on that in a moment. But like I said, we're continuing this series, wrapping up this series, Ducks in a Row. And basically we're talking about how to get our priorities right in, in seasons of change. Maybe it's new seasons as many of us have started school this last few weeks. Uh, maybe it's a transition with our work, going back into the office or it's some other thing, or maybe it's just sort of staying the same. Whatever the case is, these priorities, these things that we've been talking about are really important all the time because they're priorities that by definition, 
but they're especially seem to be important in seasons of transition when things are happening and things are moving, new people are coming into our lives, old people are leaving, whatever the case might be, these are important things. And so in week one, we talked about our reactions, and we looked at Jesus' most famous sermon, his most uh, probably quoted sermon, most uh, preached on sermon, and that he, we said that our reactions are a priority because our reactions are opportunities to show others how God will react to them. And that's a, that's a big deal. That's a weighty thing. That's a heavy thing that we're going to have an opportunity to show other people how God might react to them if they're willing to acknowledge him and go to him. Uh, then in week two, we looked at the priority of our integrity and the importance of integrity. And we define integrity as doing what you should do even when it costs you. We also know that sort of idea, doing what you should do even when no one's looking. Those kind of things sort of go together a little bit. And we looked at the story of Daniel and we said that doing the right thing even when it costs you, it also provides an opportunity for God to work. And through Daniel, God worked in his life. There was that now God moment. And so when we do the right thing, we open up that opportunity for now God to work in our lives. And maybe he only works in our hearts and helps us to continue to do the right thing as a habit. Or maybe he does something amazing and does something around us in other people's lives as well. And then last week, we looked at sort of a, a foundational principle of both our reactions and our integrity. And this foundational principle, it sort of goes to uh, why we would react the way we should react or why would we have integrity when it would be so much easier to just sacrifice our integrity. And that these things, how we react and how we have integrity, it shows whether we believe God really is in control of outcomes. Is he really in control of the outcome if I don't blow up and react and tell that person off the way that they should be? Is God really in control of that outcome? If I give up everything for this little, if I give up my integrity rather, for this little thing, this money that I can't get any other way, well, am I really believing that God is in control of outcomes? That God is in control of outcomes is sort of an important foundational principle to, um, to having integrity and to, to reacting the way we should. And so we said our reactions and our integrity reflect our confidence. Or if we have a lack of integrity or we react poorly, it shows our lack of confidence in God. So today we're going to transition, uh, we're going to talk about this last message that I think, again, is, is sort of this important message that uh, is, again, maybe of a foundational principle. It's another priority piece, but it's how we view Jesus and how we view uh, him specifically and his role in our life. And um, we're going to take a look at this. And, and unfortunately, again, if we don't remember this aspect of who Jesus is, it really can sort of, I think, lead to what we had in the pandemic and, and lead to the way that Christians are looking at the world and seeing the world and reacting in the world and, and losing their integrity, sacrificing their integrity if we don't have this thing. Um, this, this idea that we're going to talk about is Jesus as Christ. Jesus Christ. We, we, we sort of say it's one of the most uh, common identifiers with Jesus, right? You see Jesus and you say Christ, and they sort of are almost interchangeable in a lot of ways. And, but in some ways, we've sort of reduced Jesus to sort of just Jesus Christ together and not realizing that Christ is a significant term, it's a significant title associated with Jesus. And we sort of just have uh, sort of removed that. And part of the reason that I think we've removed Christ or sort of re reduced Jesus to just Jesus is that Christ doesn't have a whole lot of meaning to us. It doesn't have a lot of meaning. It's sort of the, you know, the attachment to Christmas. We sort of get Christmas from that. We get that. But other than that, the word Christ really loses its meaning in our English language. Uh, and, and in some ways, we sort of reduce Jesus to other things, other roles that he plays, whether that's savior or, or friend or, or forgiver. And, and, and he does all those things. Those are all important. But this idea of Jesus Christ, the Christ part of it, is a really significant part that if we don't realize and we don't see the significance of it, it can lead to some problems, I think, in our lives that we, we might see playing out around us. Because in the first three centuries, the word Christ had some significance behind it. It was obviously closer to the time of, of Jesus being called to Christ and, and, and living his life. 
But in our English language, this, this word Christ really has very little meaning. It almost means nothing to most of us. It's just sort of Jesus is Christ and Christ is Jesus. And they're just sort of interchangeable terms. But again, Christ meant more than that. And in the original language, this, this had some emotional weight to it. This had some value to it. It, it. it wasn't just sort of a marker to identify Jesus. It was a significant word in and of itself. Um, but again, Christ is not a name. It's a title. It's a position. And part of the problem is that Christ is a transliteration of a Greek word, Christos, which um, we sort of don't, again, know much about. And transliterations can be a little tricky, and they, they can kind of ca- cause some problems in some ways. Um, and if you don't know what transliteration is, you do. Um, what is McDonald's in Spanish? It's McDonald's, right? What is McDonald's in every other country? It's, it's McDonald's. And in those countries, there's very little understanding of what McDonald's might mean. It's just sort of identified as the restaurant. And granted, I don't know that I have a whole lot of meaning behind the word McDonald's in our culture. But that, in the same way, Christ became a transliteration of Christos, which was, again, sort of a, a synonym for a Hebrew word. And we're going to see what that all means. But there's a significance to this word that I think will, again, play itself out in how we actually live our lives. We're going to start reading in Luke chapter 1 if you want to follow along um, in the Bible app. You can follow along with the verses, but unfortunately the Bible app was having some issues today with um, the events section, so you can't necessarily follow along with all our notes. But if you're online, go to the notes tab on the church online. You can find it there. If you're in the room and you want the notes, you can go there as well. But we'll also have it on the screen. So we're in Luke chapter 1. This is the Christmas story. This is the beginning of Jesus' story that again sort of sets the stage for how we view Jesus. So we're in uh, Luke chapter 1 beginning in verse 30. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her. And this is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the angel's preparing and telling Mary about this Savior that she's going to give birth to, this Jesus, this Christ that she's going to give birth to. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus, right? That's part of his name is Jesus. Now, here's the important part, sort of transition into this, this title, this position of who Jesus is. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And again, because we don't necessarily live in a time period where uh, royal language is, is a big deal, um, this was actually using some royal language. And it was sort of saying, like, Jesus is going to be the son of the supreme king. And even that idea doesn't make sense because you're like, well, there's a king. That's sort of it. Like, how can there be a supreme king? Well, in Jesus' day, there actually was kind of quite a few people that were labeled king. And then there was like sort of a, a, a person above that, whether that was the emperor or other, other people. And so this passage is, is sort of indicating that there's this royal part to Jesus, that he's the supreme king on top of that. And, and if there was any doubt about this, this significance to the audience that, that this was being read to, the Jewish audience really got this next part. The Lord God will give him the throne, again, that royal language, give him the throne of his ancestor, David. While, while David was the second king sequentially to, for Israel, he was probably the most significant, most important king for Israel. And yet that's the, that's the throne that, that this angel's talking about for Jesus. Um, verse 33, and he will reign over Israel forever. Again, talking about Jesus. He will reign over Israel forever. So the angel's sort of, again, making sure that Mary knows that who she's giving birth to is, is a king. He's a ruler. He's a command giver. He's this important figure. He's not just a forgiver of sins, though he obviously will do that. He's not just a point of reference. Actually, everything else became a point of reference around him from this moment. And he will, reign forever. he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. That basically, Mary, your son will be a king, and his kingdom is not going to stop. It's still going to go on. That basically, Jesus is still king 
today. This is where it sort of jumps into our current day, that his kingdom never, never ends, and so that means it's still reigning. He's still reigning as king today. And this king, as we're going to see, and, and you know the story of Jesus a little bit, you know this, he came to reverse the order of things and sort of flip things upside down. This was a king who would lay down his life for his subjects instead of what most kings did, all kings did, of requiring their subjects to lay down their life for him. He's a king who would then say that as a response to what I did for you, then I want you to go and lay down your life for other people, including your enemies. This, this crazy upside down world that this king would institute. And he would turn everything upside down, but not just as a savior, not just as a forgiver of sins, but as a king who had authority. And the right for Jesus to sort of rule, it sort of washes over us and sort of passes over us, especially because we live in America. We don't want anybody to rule us, and, and we sort of overthrew a king to become a nation and to be independent. But there's this, this aspect, specifically, I think, for Americans we need to get, that Jesus is still a king, and he has the right to rule over us. But it can be sort of lost on us. And it's lost on us because we sort of made Jesus out to be something a little bit different than maybe he actually is or actually was. Uh, many of us have sort of reduced Jesus to, again, some sort of like a, a phone-a-friend. You remember that game show, Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? We could phone a friend, ask for help, that if you get in trouble, you call on Jesus. And that's the only time you call on Jesus is when you need to phone a friend asking for help with a problem. Uh, some of us have redu reduced Jesus to just sort of a backup plan. That if our plan A doesn't work, well, then you go to Jesus for plan B and to figure out what's next. Uh, maybe we just reduce Jesus to a conscience reliever, which at times in my life, I think I've probably done this, where I just use Jesus to sort of relieve my conscience and to cleanse my conscience because that thing kept bothering me and I knew I did that wrong thing and, and Jesus just comes in and sort of cleanses it, which again, is a good thing. He does do that, but that's not all he does. We also have sort of reduced Jesus to just a comforter, that he's just there for us in times when we need some comforting. And while Jesus is right to rule your life and my life, uh, it might be lost on some of us. We might sort of miss that or we sort of forget that at times. I don't think it was lost on Mary because of all the ways that the angel was reminding her, this is going to be a royal person. This is a king that you're giving birth to. When the angel came to describe the nature of this child that she was going to give birth to, it was all those things that we just talked about, but it was even more than those things as well. So on Christmas, you know the story, right? Jesus was born. A king was born. Um, but just like in our lives, when a king is born, there's already usually a king on the throne, right? There's a king already on the throne of our lives as well. And that was true when Jesus was born. There was already a king going on. There was already a king who was alive. Verse uh, Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And, and this was Herod the Great, if you don't know. This was Herod the Great who, who rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. He, he was a great architect. He was a military strategist. Uh, he was also very ruthless, and he was uh, committed to preserving his legacy through his children. Basically, he wanted his children to take over after him and to become kings as well. Continuing on. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem. And these were men likely from other kingdoms, maybe Persia or Arabia, we don't necessarily know. Um, but these men studied um, text, ancient texts. They studied the sky. They studied the movement of the planets and the stars. And, and they were looking for some sort of divine communication or divine message um, to, to sort of help guide them. And they traveled from hundreds of miles to get to Jerusalem because they knew that there was some sort of new Jewish king coming. They saw the star that identified that. And so they went to Jerusalem. Of all the places, that's where a Jewish king would come from in Jerusalem. And yet when they arrive, um, continue on verse 1, about that time some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, and they were asking, where is this newborn king of the Jews? We saw his stars at rose, and we have come 
to worship him. Verse 3, King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as, as was everyone in Jerusalem. And this is where there's a little bit of an important distinction that sometimes we need to make about Jesus, that Jesus was not just another rabbi. There were lots of other rabbis. He was not just a teacher. There was lots of other teachers in this day and age. He was not just another religious figure. As you read the Gospels, you hear about all these religious leaders and other teachers, and there was all kinds of religious leaders everywhere. This wasn't just the birth of a prophet. There were lots of prophets before Jesus. This was something different. This was the birth of a king, and Herod's reaction and the reaction of the people in Jerusalem signified that there was something significant about this birth of the king, that it was different from a rabbi, it was different from just a teacher, different from a prophet, that this, this birth of a king, it signaled a regime change, right? For Herod, that was a big deal for him. It was signaled like, oh, is there a new king coming in? Like, I'm still here, and I want my kids to be king, and I want my generations to continue after that. Does that mean there's a regi- regime change happening? The birth of a king signaled changes in the way that people we're going to live, right? Just generically, if anytime a king is born, well, that means the things are probably going to change. The birth of the king, birth of a king would lead to allegiance changes, right? Changes in people's allegiance to who are they actually following? Who are they actually leading? Who's actually in authority? And for Herod, the birth of a king threatened his future and his legacy. And I think we see something in Herod that's also in us, that there's this thing we feel threatened by Jesus as king. And so in many ways, we sort of just reduce Jesus to all these other things because we don't want his authority in our life. We don't want a king in our life. We want to be independent. We want Jesus as forgiver. We want Jesus as our friend. We want Jesus to sort of be there for us when we need him. But do we really want Jesus as the king of our lives, as the authority over us? Well, Herod is not someone who sort of just waited to see what would happen. He's a very proactive and, again, ruthless person. And that continued through this um, interaction with these, mad, right, these, these, uh, um, these people, from these wise men. Uh, verse 4, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked them, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? And, and it goes on a lot further than that, right? He's trying to pinpoint where is this Messiah and when was this Messiah born? Because I'm going to go get rid of him. Because this idea of Messiah, we sort of ask, well, why is he inserting Messiah in there? Messiah had a very close connection to king. In fact, in many ways, the Jewish audience would have understood this to be God's future king or his final king that God was sending to the world to help rescue his nation, to rescue his people. And that's where we sort of get, again, the the, the synonym of it in the Greek language. when When the Gospels were translated into Greek, the Christos, this idea of Christ. It's sort of a similar idea. It's a synonym for each other. And so Christ is not Jesus' last name. I always think that's funny because I never really thought of that. But there are people who think Jesus Christ, that's his last name, right? Christ is his last name. It's not his last name. It's also not some sort of a nickname that just sort of goes along with who Jesus is. Christ isn't a descriptor necessarily. It's a title. It's, It's a position of authority that Jesus has. And again, we don't necessarily get that because Christ doesn't mean a whole lot to us in our day and age. But another way to say it would be Jesus King or King Jesus. And when we say Jesus Christ, again, we sort of just pass over that. And in fact, in some ways, I thought about this the last few months. Um, In some ways, when I'm sort of trying to simplify my messages and trying to cut out things and remove things, I've actually gotten to the place where I actually remove Christ. Instead of saying both Jesus Christ, I'm just trying to cut out words. I cut out that word sometimes. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I'm doing this. I'm trying to reduce Jesus down and trying to simplify and there's a sense in which when we say Jesus Christ, we're saying King Jesus. We're acknowledging his authority and his rule 
in our lives. But unfortunately, because of our culture, maybe not even necessarily anything at our fault of ourselves, we sort of have sort of not had any weight behind the idea of Christ. The idea of Jesus being a final authority has almost just sort of disappeared from many of our thinking about Jesus. Again, he's reduced to my friend, my savior, and he just sort of comes through for me. And while Jesus does those things, they miss his authority in our lives. And we sort of move right past that and forget that. That saving is what he does, but king is who Jesus actually is. And Herod realized that God's final king, God's future king, this Jesus Messiah was coming and Herod felt very threatened. And I think that's where we also again come in. We feel threatened by his authority as well. And while Herod obviously reacts hopefully very differently than we will to that kingship in our life, the being confronted with Jesus as king, um, in some ways his reaction is, is a bit more authentic to the term and then who Jesus actually is. And sometimes we don't react that way. That Herod was right to be threatened by it because he knew something that we miss and we don't realize when we think about kings because we don't think about kings that much. When a king is born, people must choose. People must choose if they're going to continue to follow him or if they're going to do something else and follow some other guy or leave the country or whatever. But the same is also true when a king dies, that people must choose, again, who they're going to follow. And interestingly with Jesus, both those situations happened and they happened even after he died as he came back to life. We're going to jump ahead a little bit to when Jesus is giving his final instructions. He's died, he's risen from the dead, and he's giving these last instructions. It's, again, it's a reminder for us of who Jesus actually is as a king. Uh, Matthew chapter 28, beginning of verse 17. When they saw him, and these are the disciples, when they saw him, they worshiped him. Now, I think we sort of just run past this because especially what the verses are that come right after this, we sort of know them and we jump ahead to them. But this is an important point because before this, the disciples didn't have this as a regular habit where they worshiped Jesus. They only worshiped Jesus at this point and moving forward because they realized that Jesus rose from the dead and if Jesus can rise from the dead, he really does have authority over everything. And he really is king of some kingdom that's bigger than this world. And so they realized that and they spent time worshiping and, and giving their attention to him and giving him their praise. So when they saw him, they worshiped him. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given. Again, this is something we skip past. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Now, only a crazy person would say that, right? Or... Someone for, hit, for whom this is actually true. And I think typically we sort of look at this verse and we sort of look at this verse in light of what he's going to say next, that Jesus is going to give us the power to go and do things in his name. But we need to pause and remember that Jesus actually has this authority and power in the first place. And we really can skip past that so quickly that he says these things that come after that. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey. Teach them to obey all the commands I have given you. And he says command because if we say that we're following Jesus, if we say that Jesus has the ability to do that, then we're acknowledging his authority and his, his reign and his rule over us in our lives to give those commands, not as suggestions, right, as somebody else in some other roles might do, but he's giving these as commands and he has the authority and the power to actually give those commands. And we're signing up for those commands, right? If we're following Jesus, we're signing up for the commands that he wants us to share with others. So our point for today is that following King Jesus means submitting his authority. And that sounds so basic, right? That just sounds like Christianity 101. We should know this. And yet we look back at 2020 and we look back at this last season and we think, hmm, 
maybe we need this reminder a little bit more. Because the way that we reacted, the way that we sacrificed our integrity, the way that we showed that we didn't have confidence in God, it really shows that maybe Jesus isn't king in our hearts. He isn't really king in our lives. And we're not submitting to his authority. We're doing our thing. We're trying to win the game. We're trying to do, uh, do and preserve our rights the way that we want to preserve our rights. So how can we actually remember that Jesus is our king? Well, I have three things, and this is not to try to make it simple, but I also want to make it a little bit simple because this is not a simple idea, but it is complex. And so let me give you three things that hopefully will help. Number one, I encourage you to pray, and I encourage you to pray a little bit of a strange prayer. Rule over and overrule me. And that comes from a lyric that I actually shared with you guys a couple months ago from a song called Better King by Brandon Murphy. And the point of the song was, was really to help emphasize that we want to be kings in our own lives, right? That's kind of the goal. We want to be a king or we want to be a queen of our own lives, and we just want to sort of be ruling ourselves. But the reminder is that Jesus is a better king than we are. And so the prayer is simply, God, would you rule over me? And also at times, would you overrule me? Because there are times when we try to do things our way, and we need to be open to the fact that God has permission. We give him permission to overrule us and to lead us in the direction that he wants us to actually go. Because do we realize, I don't know if we actually realize that we are accountable to a king. Like every day of our lives, we are going to be accountable to a king. Are we, are we actually aware of that. Because of all this 2020 thing and all the things that happened with you know, politics and COVID and, and race relations and all those things, we all sort of went to our political corners in a lot of ways and we sort of retreated back to those political corners and we're hoping somehow that that would save us, whatever us and save actually meant. And I sort of wonder if Jesus was looking down on us. I read this interesting quote that I, I think is funny, this sort of joke, that Jesus was looking down on us wondering, do you think that when you die, you're going to go Washington, D.C.? <laughs> like, do you think somehow that that's like the goal at the end of all this thing, that you're going to end up in your political heaven, whatever that looks like? Uh, when you're sick, do you call on your congressman or congresswoman? Do you call on your senators? No, of course we don't call on them in those situations. We're not going to try to call on him as we're dying. We're not going to try to call on him as people are sick around us, as we're sick. We're going to go to God. We're going to go to Jesus because we know he can actually do something about it because he has the authority to do something about it. So how can we remember that Jesus is our king? Number two, I think every day we need to answer the question, is Jesus my king? Every day, not just once like and settles it all. There are those moments where we need to sort of establish a pattern and a direction for our life and let God establish that pattern and direction for our life. But then it's sort of a daily thing. That every day we need to answer the question, is Jesus really my king? Or am I becoming my own king? Is some political party or pundit or, or talking head becoming my king? Is some other technology or device or thing becoming my king? That if Jesus is actually the king of our lives, he comes along and he, and he, and he invites us into this bigger kingdom than we ever could imagine. This is a king who, who doesn't come along uh, to sort of just forgive us of our sin. This is a king that we can follow to avoid sin. This is a king that doesn't just come along behind us and convict us of that poor reaction or we shouldn't have done that thing. This is a king that we can follow, that we can react in such a way that it actually reflects the king that we're trying to follow, that actually he cares about other people, that we should actually care about other people. This is a king that doesn't just want us to do the right thing because it's the right thing. This is a king who wants us to do the right thing even when it will cost us because that again will be a reflection of the king that we're following. 
So if you're a Jesus follower, the question I think that we have to wrestle with kind of frequently, <laughs> daily at least, is Jesus my king? And I'd encourage you maybe to think about that. As you start your day, the next few days, the next week or so, is Jesus my king? And, and, and commit to asking God to, to, to be your king and allow him to be your king in your life. That as you get up in the day and as you make decisions, as you figure out how you're going to spend your time and your money and you prioritize your day, whatever that looks like, allow this question to sort of resonate in your heart as you make those decisions. Is Jesus my king? And the unsettling thing about Jesus as king, and it's kind of an unusual thing about Jesus as king, is that he doesn't push us. He doesn't invade us. He invites us to follow him, which is, again, not the norm of most kings, right? It's not the norm of any king that we've ever heard about. And he invites us to choose him or follow him. But when we choose not to follow him, we really miss out on this kingdom, this bigger picture of the world that we're not participating in. That when you and I opt out of the kingdom of God, we opt out of following Jesus, we miss out on a huge opportunity. And when we do that, our faith is sort of just reduced to religion. It's just sort of reduced to this thing that maybe Tim Keller was right. We're just sort of using it as a front to get what we actually want. Uh, so number one, pray, rule over me, rule over and overrule me. Number two, answer honestly every day, is Jesus my king? And then number three, emphasize Christ and Jesus Christ. Now, I try to do this a little bit throughout the week that um, when I heard Jesus Christ, I paused and tried to remember Christ as king and didn't just run by it like, oh, that's just Jesus' last name or that's just Jesus' name or just run past it and forget that Jesus is actually a king. He's actually got this Messiah. He's, he's the authority in my life. And we think that again, we think Jesus, we think Christ is just sort of synonymous um, because again, it has very little meaning. But I'd encourage you this week that hopefully as you hear Jesus, maybe you just hear Jesus by itself, you sort of fill in Christ. Or if you hear somebody say Jesus Christ and they're saying it, you know, in vain or, you know, out of anger or whatever, you sort of remind yourself, oh yeah, they're actually sort of proclaiming in a way, they're proclaiming that Jesus is king. And is he actually the king of my life? So maybe that will help remind you to sort of emphasize that Christ and Jesus Christ. Um, as we sort of wrap up, the uncertainty this past season, it really has shown us a lot, and, and we might think that it sort of altered a lot of things, and it did alter a lot of things. Don't get me wrong. It altered a lot of our lives. It changed work. It changed school. It changed a lot of things. But again, in many ways, this last season that we we're coming out of or sort of still in, whatever, uh, it's sort of highlighted and sort of uh, shown us, revealed to us what our values actually were. And again, for too many Christians, it was not looking like Jesus. It was much more about winning our rights and having our way. And it may be a little bit discouraging at times. I don't know about you, but it was very discouraging at me at times. Like, what do we do moving forward? We've seen, we've seen Christianity sort of just put in the trash bin and just sort of swept away in a lot of ways. And, and even we, we've contributed to that, obviously, ourselves, where we haven't always reacted the right way or, or sacrificed our integrity in times. And what's the way forward? How do we actually continue to live in this world and, and try to help people to follow Jesus? I think that means following King Jesus and submitting to his authority, that if we're actually willing to do that on a sort of a daily basis, a regular basis with all of our decisions, with all of our priorities, with all the things happening, if we're willing to submit to his authority, that helps lead us forward. That this was a big deal, that Jesus' authority in our lives, that we can have better reactions, right? You sort of wonder, like, how can I react better in the moment? It's just in the moment, it's happening. But if we submit to Jesus' authority, we can have reactions like him to unexpected things, things that we would have never wanted to happen and unfair things in our life. And it will show other people how God will react to them. That if we submit to King Jesus's authority by doing what we know we should do, even when it's going to cost us, it will be an opportunity for God to work, if nothing else, in our own lives. 
When we submit to King Jesus' authority by reflecting our confidence in God and our integrity in him, when we submit to Jesus' authority in our lives, we proclaim that Jesus is king of our lives and really he's the king of all this world that we live in. But if we don't, if we continue to live for our rights and our way and, and just think about our authority and try to be king ourselves or queen ourselves, then unfortunately we might prove that Tim Keller was right. That religion is really just a cover for people wanting to get their way in the world. Because if we just react like everybody else, if we just have integrity like everybody else, if we have a lack of integrity like everybody else, if we just ignore what we know we should do, then our faith just looks like a cover for doing what we want to do. And that is not a representation, a good representation of Jesus. That Jesus was the only king willing to give up his life for not just those inside his kingdom, but he was willing to give up his life for those outside of his kingdom as well. So is he your king? Is he my king? 